So, anyway, all that to say, um, I want to, before Carla comes up to read, just point you to the heart of Jesus in this passage. I um, have had one of those weeks, you know the ones I mean, hard to breathe, <laughs> full, struggling to get a moment, grasping at time with God. And as we come into John 14, uh, Jesus is having one of those weeks for the ages. John 13, we, we were there a couple of weeks ago, described him as deeply troubled in heart. And there's no wonder, one of his best friends is about to give him over to the Romans to be crucified. After his arrest, his other disciples will flee and deny him. He will be mocked and flogged and beaten, crucified. And that's only the beginning because he is staring down the barrel of the full weight of God's righteous anger. So no wonder his heart is deeply troubled. But in verse 1 of John chapter 14, with his deeply troubled heart, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, don't let your hearts be troubled. It's the same words. Jesus, with his anxiety and his anguish and his trouble, is more concerned about his disciples than about himself. And that, in a nutshell, is this passage of Scripture we're in. The farewell discourse in John is essentially just the loving heart of Jesus given over to his disciples as he comforts them and encourages them on the eve of his arrest and death. It's the final words of Jesus. It's his kind of last will and testament. And he begins by saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. What we're going to see this morning is one very simple reason to not have troubled hearts. And it's who Jesus is. He's the way and he is the truth. And he is the life. Good. All right. Um, well, a preacher's dream. Three points. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That cut an hour out of my work and week this week. Gorgeous. <laughs> Jesus is the way. Uh, a few years ago, I uh, met a friend at the Wangi near Drimmon. Some of you might know it. It's a small hill. Uh, we thought it would just be a casual kind of walk and catch up. Uh, I brought the coffee. He brought the croissants. It's lovely, wander to the top of the hill. We were talking about Jesus and Liverpool. Sunny day, always good in the world. And then we thought, why don't we go down this side of the hill? We detour, we'll see what's down there. And uh, gradually, very slowly, one step at a time, we found ourselves alone uh, with no other people around and no idea where we needed to go or how to get there. The uh, question that Thomas asked Jesus was in our mouths. How can we know the way if we don't know where we're going? We were just scrambling around reeds. At one point, uh, my friend almost fainted. I had to run to someone in the distance, bring him back some mini eggs to revive him. It was an ordeal. And of course, being men, we wouldn't just admit we'd taken a wrong turn and go back the way we came. We kept plowing ahead. We need to find the way. I, I said to him, once we finally got back to the car, I'm not joking, four hours later, I said to him, that feels like the proverb, there is a way that seems right to man, and it leads to death. We're just choosing one turn after another, no idea where we're going or how to get there. And it's sometimes life feels like that. Sometimes life feels like a mad scramble over reeds and rivers, trying to get somewhere, but not really knowing where we're trying to go. Jesus' first claim that he is the way speaks to a feeling we all have that there is somewhere we need to get to 
but we don't know how to go there. Each one of us, whether it was the first hunter-gatherers or a stay-at-home mum in Clarkston or a business student at Glasgow Uni, we have this vision of the good life, of somewhere we need to get to, that where we are now is not our final destination. The issue is in our cultural moment that we presume that will happen inevitably. We betray that we think we're going somewhere with phrases like, he's on the right side of history, or she was so ahead of her time. We think that history's going somewhere, that we're on the way, we're going to the place that we need to go. And the Christian faith agrees that history is moving towards a crescendo. It's moving somewhere. Christian faith agrees that there is something beyond the something. There's a ground to reality that goes beyond the humdrum of our everyday lives. We're all asking Thomas's question, how do I get where I need to go and where should I be going? But the idea of a right side of history clashes against Jesus because here's where the Christian faith disagrees. Jesus does not presume that we will inevitably get there. History is not long, kind of one long winding road towards utopia. Jesus claims very simply that there is one way to get to the good. In fact, Jesus makes the stunning claim that he himself is the only way. And the reason for that is because, just like me wandering through reeds and bushes, life is not simple. Life is not one long, uh, kind of paved path that doesn't go uphill. Life is kind of like the Israelites on the banks of the Red Sea, with an uncrossable sea in front of them and an army behind them, with no idea what to do next. That's really what life feels like so often. And so the idea that we will just drift into utopia is unrealistic, and Jesus wants to rebuke us in our passivity. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So we think we'll drift to the good life, but we also make the mistake of thinking that we can earn the good life. Let's remember that in this moment, Jesus is not speaking to people who have never met him. He's speaking to his disciples. It means that Jesus is and remains the way. He said earlier in John's Gospel, I am the gate. The sheep come in through me. Now he's saying something similar, but the way implies this is an ongoing reality for Christians and non-Christians. Dane Ortland outlines this in his book, Deeper. And he speaks about how as Christians we have this desire to move forward into holiness, into looking more like Jesus. We have a temptation to say, well, Jesus was the gate. But something else is the way. He calls it the pattern of God, then, me. So we come to Jesus for salvation, but we don't see the gospel as enough to empower us to get to the end. We don't see the gospel as enough. We don't see Jesus as enough to change us into the person we are to become. Paul, uh, the apostle, rejects this in Galatians 3. When he writes this, he says, Are you so foolish? 
after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Christian or not, the Bible wants to drive a stake in this moment with this grand claim into our arrogant belief that we can move one inch closer to God through our own effort, through our own self-determination and will and hard work. No, Jesus is the only way. He's the only way. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, My father's house has many rooms. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So first, Jesus goes to prepare a place. The context of John's gospel will suggest that we hear Jesus say, I will go and start building a house for you. What he probably has his mind on is, I will go to the cross. I I must go from here. Jesus prepares a place for us with God by dying in our place. That is a stunning vision of John's gospel, that Jesus, God with us, will be hung up to die, and through doing that will carve a way for us to get to God. Hebrews 10 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain of his body. It's not just that thinking nice things about Jesus is the way. It's not just that his advice is the way. That he himself, his broken body, through his broken body, is the way to God. In his death, he opens a door. And in his resurrection, he raises us through the door with him into God's presence. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the only ground of our hope. He is the only way. And so that's how he prepares a place for us. But look at what what he is preparing. He says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. The word for room there is monai, and it comes from the verb that is often repeated in John's gospel, which means to abide. In John 15, we'll say Jesus commands his disciples, abide in me. We might say that Jesus is actually saying, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. In my Father's house, there are many places for you to sit down and rest. In other words, it's not the kind of Sunday school vision of a mansion in heaven that Jesus is going to build is this. In my Father's presence, there is room for you. God wants us. Jesus prepares a place for us to know God in intimacy and friendship. And there is many rooms Now just hear what Jesus is saying because he doesn't want his disciples in the moment that Judas has just walked out to go, oh, maybe there's there's only 10 rooms. Maybe one more of us won't make it. But there are many rooms in my father's house. There is ample room for all who would come to Jesus. So now as we speak, As you and I stand and sit here speaking about Jesus, he is preparing a place 
for anyone who will come through his broken body into the presence of God and find life. He is the only way. His message is utterly different to every other religious claim. Not do this and reach God. Not let me show you the way and then we'll walk it together. Not here's three steps to get to God. But I am the way. Come to me. I am the way. Friends, when the Israelites are on the bank of the Red Sea, they have no choice but to just walk the way that God gives them. There's no plan B. They don't get to turn foot because they'll die. They don't get to swim. The waters are stacked up on two walls either side and there is one way to life. You must walk that way. Jesus is the way. Here's what's glorious about the Exodus story, that as the Israelites come through the sea, God doesn't say, well, that's great, I saved you. Good luck. No, he meets with them. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. He reveals himself to them. At Mount Sinai, he shows Moses who he is so that Moses can tell the people who he is. And so at this point, we might think, well, that's fine and well, Jesus, that you are the way, but what are you the way to? You've not really answered Thomas's question. We don't know where we're going. And so Jesus is not content just to show us that he's the way, but that he is the truth. Look at verse 7 in John 14. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. But Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time, and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. So believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. I am the way and the truth. Before we just jump into the fullness of Jesus' claim, let's just clear the jungle in front of us a little. You may be here, you might not be a believer in Jesus, and... Jesus is just about to bump up against the fundamental myth of our modern culture. How could he be so arrogant? How could he be so sure that he alone has the truth about God? Doesn't each religion just have one part of the truth? Well, imagine that I had buried some treasure around Glasgow for you to find and you came to me with only half of it and I said, oh no, that's not, that's not the lot, you better go out and find the rest. The only way that I know that you only have part of the treasure is because I know where the whole thing is. So to claim that each religion only has part of the truth is implicitly to claim that I know the whole truth. 
In other words, the statement, there is no such thing as truth, is a truth claim. Leslie Newbegin is um, a missiologist, and he put it this way. He said, there is an appearance of humility in this claim. That's the claim that each religion has part of the truth. But it is, in fact, an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior. What is this vantage ground from which you claim to be able to relativize all the absolute claims these different scriptures make? So to say, well, Jesus, Jesus got some of it, and the Hindus have some of it, and my friend over here has some of it, but I, I know that they have some of it, implies that you have the whole thing. So let me just invite you into a posture of humility to hear Jesus at his word and take him as he speaks to you and hear what he has to say to you and not dismiss it as only one part of the truth. Philip gives Jesus a simple request. He says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. He's, He's just like Moses in the Exodus story, having come through the Red Sea and met God on Mount Sinai. He says this in Exodus 33, Lord, show me your glory. It's the fundamental human desire. I want to see God. I want to know what he's like. Now here's what Moses got. Moses got a fleeting glimpse at the back of God as he hid himself in a rock so that he wouldn't die at God's glory. Now, does Jesus start to get his chisel out to carve a nook in the rock for Philip? No, he doesn't get the back of God. He doesn't get a glimpse at God. He gets something very different. He gets this, anyone who has seen me has already seen the Father. In other words, why are you even asking? I've already showed you. Jesus' stunning claim is that as we look at him, we are directly looking at God himself. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Remember, Leslie Newbegin said that we don't have a vantage point to know the full truth from. Well, Jesus, in his desire to give us confidence, doesn't just claim to be the truth, but shows us why we can trust him. And the answer is this, he has the right vantage point. He's not like Moses who was just told some true things. He's not just a prophet. He hasn't guessed. He hasn't figured it out. He has the right vantage point. He is in the Father. And the Father is in him. He knows the truth because he is truth. He is the eternal God. And it works itself out in his words in verse 10. He says, the words I say to you, I don't say with my own authority. Rather, it is the Father who is living in me, who is doing his work. So when Jesus acts and speaks, he's not acting like one God in a Greek pantheon. He doesn't have his own power. He's acting with the shared life of God the Father and God the Spirit through and in and with him. Theologians call this the inseparable operations of the Trinity. All this means is that when Jesus works or speaks or saves, when the Spirit sanctifies or gives gifts, when the Father adopts us as his children, 
that it is God, Father, Son, and Spirit that are at work. Now, why is that so important? Why, why would Jesus, in this moment, turn to that lofty theology in this moment of need? Well, the answer is because the things that God does are the only and the main way that we can come to know him. They're the main way that he has revealed himself. And so he wants us to know, not just for theological accuracy, but for assurance that the works and words of Jesus are the works and words of God. That, in short, Jesus is what God is like. That is wonderfully good news if you ever sat up late at night wondering how God feels about you, wondering what he's like, wondering whether he could ever relate to you or love you or understand you. Jesus is what God is like. We see the wisdom of God as he teaches. And we see the tears of God as he stands at Lazarus' tomb. And we see the dusty, dirty knees of God as he washes his disciples' feet. And we see the blood of God shed for us at the cross. When we see Jesus, we see God. And we can trust God because God is like Jesus. In the words of Michael Ramsey, God is Christ-like and in him is no unchrist-likeness at all. But as Jesus stuns us with that claim, he removes an option from us. He removes an option from you this morning. He removes the option of being neutral about him. He is not one option for many. He doubles down on the exclusivity of his first claim. And he says, I am the truth. C.S. Lewis famously spoke to this reality. He said this, he said, others say, this is the truth about the universe, or this is the way that you ought to go. But he says, I am the truth and the way and the life. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He did not intend to. Jesus isn't giving his disciples an option. He's not saying, in me you can find a part of the truth. If he's not right, he is making the arrogant and deluded and ridiculous claim that he is the God of the universe with flesh on. So C.S. Lewis is right. Either we worship him or we don't ever think about him again. If he is not God, we should relegate him to the back pages of history. Just get rid of him. He is not worth even wondering about anymore. The question is, is Jesus telling the truth? 
If he is, he is the most important person in history. If he's not, he is not worth our time. That's the decision we have to make. Because he is very clear. He is the only way. And he's the only truth. But lastly, before we end, Jesus is the life. And we'll see more of this reality next week as he begins to speak about the Holy Spirit. But for now, look with me at verse 12 to 14. He says this, he says, Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John Wimber, uh, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, uh, he famously became a Christian from a lifestyle of playing in bands and taking drugs and all this kind of thing. And he was introduced to the Bible and he began to read the Gospels and the Book of Acts. And he decided to become a Christian and he showed up to church the first time and he sat next to someone and he heard the sermon and he sang the songs. And at the end, he turned to his neighbor and said, when do we get to do the stuff? What do you mean the stuff? He said, the stuff that Jesus does and that his disciples do, when do we get to do the stuff? The stuff is all that Jesus promises his disciples can walk in. The same kind of power to heal and prophesy and preach as he had. That's the stuff of the Christian life. And I would love to spend some time practically exploring it. We might do that next week, but for now, let me just spell out for you the connection he's making. What does he mean that we will do greater things than him? People have come up with all sorts of ways to brush this aside. Well, let me be clear, he, he can't mean two things. So first, he, he can't just mean, well, there's more of you than there is of me, so you'll do more stuff than me. There, there is a word in Greek that means more. He would have just said that word. He also can't mean that we'll do more amazing stuff than him. Because let's just be clear that there's nothing more amazing than being raised from the dead in power. We're never going to top that. Here's what he means, and here's his connection to being the way and the truth. He makes it explicit. He doesn't hide it. He says, you will do greater things than me because I am going to the Father. In other words, because he will be risen from the grave in resurrection life and ascend to heaven in great power, he now pours out his spirit onto us. And now Jesus, the way and the truth, pours his life into us by the Spirit so that in Jesus' earthly life, a few thousand people in Galilee saw the glory of God. But now, as the life of Jesus is poured into us, the whole world will see. That's why he says, ask me anything and I will do it. You might think of Acts 1.1 where Luke declares that the Gospels are just the beginning of what Jesus is doing in the world. We will do greater things than he because through his church, Jesus is saving the whole world. Through his church, this message that had not left the borders of Israel 
has now gone to the islands and the coastlands, as, I, as, I, as Isaiah put it. The whole world will see. That's what he means. That's why our works are greater. Because they finally achieve what they were supposed to achieve. Every eye see him. And one day every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that he is the way and the truth and the life. So Jesus opens the way for us to come to the Father and he reveals the Father to us in his life and death and he now pours out his life into us as we live out the kingdom of God on the ground here and now. If Jesus doesn't get to this, he's giving an abstract lecture on religious theory. But he does, because he's the life, and it's his life that we have been invited into. Jesus' teaching to his disciples is not abstract. It's not ethereal or religious. It's much more than a textbook on how to sail. It's an invitation to hoist our sails and to allow the wind of God's Spirit to blow into the stuff of life. It's an invitation into a new kind of life. It's a repeat of his promise in John 10. I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance. And that life is a life that walks the Jesus way into the presence of God. It's a life that believes the Jesus truth that he reveals the Father to us. And it is a life that lives in the Jesus stuff. As we heal and pray and prophesy and preach and see the name of Jesus glorified in the world. The Christian life is a life of union with the Trinity. In Christ the Son, we see and come to the Father and are filled with the Spirit, so that the Father might be glorified in the Son. That, Jesus lays that out. That is Christianity 101. He is the way and the truth and the life. Just as we close, let me read to you from Thomas Akempis. Uh, he was a medieval um, monk, and he meditated on these claims of Jesus. It's as though Jesus would speak to us through these words this morning. Follow me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which you must follow. The truth which you must believe. The life for which you must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth. I am life true, life blessed, life uncreated. Let's pray together.